our emotion regulation really depends on our ability to be mindful of the fluctuations in our levels of arousal and respond wisely. Becoming aware of our body sensations, our thoughts, emotions, responses, we can learn to recognize when we are inside of our optimal zone of functioning or outside of our optimal zone of functioning. Welcome to Stigma is Curable, a new mini-series offered by The Promethean Project and Break the Chains, Find Your Flame. Our goal is to have conversations about certain stigmas in mental health and physical health and wellness. Each month, we will invite a guest speaker, an expert, to come and present to the community about a specific stigma and have a community conversation to break down the stigmas and create connection. everyone so excited to have you here with us today we are live on zoom with a good number of people and we hopefully are live on facebook with you right now this is our 10th stigma is curable and uh, this is a good one and my good friend joe is here to present for us and actually she did me the favor of having a write-up which is fantastic so i'm gonna go from the write-up even though i don't feel like i need to um, just to do an introduction, but for anyone who was wondering what we're talking about tonight, we are talking about many different things, compassion fatigue, self-care, self-compassion, healing healers. This really is going to be looking at uh, people who work in the service field and how we can really build self-compassion and recharge our own batteries to do the work, show up and be present for the people we work with, but then also have a life ourselves and work our, on our own healing. So many of us have uh, take steps on that journey. So we're gonna talk more about that today. I have my Promethean Project self-care cup here. I don't know if you can really see it. It's just this fancy little teapot pouring self-care into a cup. Um, and it's a, a good tea cup too. And I felt like it'd be very apropos for tonight. Um, so I'm gonna introduce Joanne. Um, let me tell you about the Promethean Project first. We are a nonprofit wellness center whose aim is to make a community of health and wellness that breaks stigmas and really works on building connection to do the work in mental health, physical health and wellness, holistic health and wellness, and really just to put the community back into these segmented groups that we often associate with, whether it's therapy or uh, primary care or specialist or the gym, we want to incorporate everything together so we can all be working on it together. And Joe and I had talked about this, it may come up later in the presentation, but we really feel like that's where the future is going for mental health, but just health and wellness in general. So yes. I have teased <laughs> introducing Joe. So here we go. She's a clinical social worker and psychotherapist currently running a private practice in Medway, Massachusetts. Her interests fall heavily on the somatic and depth psychologies, mindfulness, meditation, and the emerging field of relational neuroscience. 
educated in social work at both the undergraduate and graduate levels at Salem State University. She believes in holistic view of the self, looking at a person from a bio, psych, social, and spiritual perspective. I feel like I need to do an announcer's voice on this, so give me this next part. Joanne's approach integrates developmental, (laughs) psychoanalytical, and relational psychologies, incorporating (laughs) contemplative, meditative, and mindfulness-based approaches to her practice. That hurts the throat (laughs) too much, so I'm going to change. Over the last 20 years, Joanne has trained and practiced in a variety of settings and modalities, primarily with adults and adolescents, focusing on the exploration and understanding of the human experience. It goes on and on, and she's just awesome. I I guess I I could have said she's awesome. (laughs) Uh, She's pretty fantastic. We've run groups together, which has been uh, very informative for myself as a therapist and, you know, hopefully for her too. And she's had to put up with my quirky sense of humor. So without further ado, seven minutes into the presentation, here she is. Hello, everybody. Thank you, Steve, for the introduction. Um, and thank you all so much for coming. Um, I wanted to start off by, by really sharing some appreciation and gratitude that I have for so many people that reach out to me um, in supporting this. Um, and I just wanna just give a little shout out to all the different types of people. Um, I'm gonna start actually, you know, before I do this, I'm gonna share my screen so you can see my slide. Get a little slideshow. Um, so hopefully everybody can see that. Um, so we're going to be talking about using mindfulness self in self-compassion to combat the effects of traumatic stress and compassion fatigue. Um, so here's the welcome that we have teachers, counselors, therapists, nurses, social activists, advocates, healers, caretakers, parents, and humans in the space with us today. Um, so many people who reached out and I'm like, I just need to make a note of all the different disciplines and fields and places and walks of life that people are showing up to this space. And um, I'm gonna try and be mindful of the language that I use tonight. Sometimes I'm gonna be talking about educators, sometimes therapists, but any of the words that I'm using are really interchangeable. And like Steve said, we're just here, um, I think as you know, human beings who have uh, a lot of empathy. This is probably what really connects us all um, w- that want to be uh, in the helping field or just in the service of others. Um, and especially now at this time, you know, it's such a difficult and strenuous time for all of us. How do we continue to do this work and keep ourselves well so that we, um, so that we don't burn out and experience some of this compa- compassion fatigue that I'm sure so many of us are right now. Um, There is this lovely quote that I think encapsulates exactly what we're trying to do here today or what we're going to be talking about. Um, And it's, we can only give to others the depth of positivity and wellness that we have obtained for ourselves. So this is sort of the spirit that we're going to be moving from today as we move through this, um, through the presentation. So we're going to be talking about, this is what you can expect to learn. So we're going to be moving through and talking about how mental health, about mental health stigma and how it can create a barrier to attaining the supports that what we might need. And why as caretakers and educators and those who work in the service of others are more susceptible to mental health issues and conditions, including secondary trauma and compassion fatigue. We're going to come to understand our own fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. Uh, and learn about the window of tolerance. 
And we're going to use mindfulness as a tool to build understanding of what we might be experiencing to gain insight and how we can tend to those sensations and feelings. And lastly, we're going to be learning about how self-compassion can be the foundation of self-care and the antidote to compassion fatigue. Uh, we're going to do this through mindfulness, through education of stigma, compassion fatigue, understanding our nervous systems, and through the cultivation of self-compassion um, and kind of redefining what self-care means to us. It's really my intention today to invite you all to a place of compassion, self-awareness, where we can begin to explore the challenging experiences that we encounter and build insights to better recognize and understand ourselves in times of activation and distress. I really wanna build a shareable dialogue about how we as caretakers can show up for ourselves so that we can in turn show up for others. Okay, so we're gonna start, um, we're gonna start by doing a little bit of a breathing exercise. Um, it's really important that for me that I'm mindful of the time that you've taken out of your schedules to be here today. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about this um, as we move forward, but I really want this to be an actual practice in self-care. So this is really um, the invitation to that. So let's just allow ourselves to kind of come into the space where we find ourselves now. Um, we've all had a day. It's, you know, quarter past six. Um, so maybe just close your eyes and find a comfortable position. You feel your feet on the floor. Let's begin to notice the chair or the seat that you're in and how it's supporting you. And then begin to draw your attention to your breath. Just noticing the rise and fall of your chest. Maybe the quality of air on the tip of your nose. Just allowing yourself to be here now in the present moment. And as we begin to move into the conversation and the discussion about self-care and compassion fatigue, before we get there, maybe set an intention for yourself, a way that you wanna use this time And when you feel ready, you can flutter open your eyes and we'll move our way into the discussion. And I'm gonna stop by talking about me a little bit. Steve did an awesome job um, introducing me. So I'll kind of breeze through this a little bit, but I've been practicing social work for 20 years and, do, and um, being outpatient mental health therapist for the last 15 years. But I'm also a mom to two children, um, a five and a six year old. I love to garden. I'm a big fan of yoga. I have a personal journey with depression and anxiety that I've experienced throughout my life. My favorite season is the fall. Uh, and I am in this with you. Um, this is my laundry room. Uh, this is sort of what, what my home looks like right now. Um, I'm, I wanted to make sure um, that we're all on the same page here, that I'm not across the screen speaking to you as if I have achieved or arrived in some place. This is something that is a practice for me, self-compassion, um, my mental health practice, being aware of the stigmas as they show up in my life, 
um, and how I tend to myself and my own emotional experience. And I think maybe five or six years ago, taking a picture of my laundry room looking like this and putting it up on, um, on some sort of social media or Zoom platform, I would be like, oh my gosh, but this really is an affirmation of self-love and self-care for me that I'm not holding myself um, to as unrealistic standards that I used to. And, and this used to be really shameful for me. But like I said, now this is just like an affirmation of, yeah, like life's hard <laughs> and you can't do it all. We're a mom and we work and I work. And, you know, sometimes the laundry just like does not get done. Um, so yeah, we are all in this together. Um, I wanted to uh, just kind of also touch on before we move into mental health stigma, what this is not going to be. This isn't going to be a time that I'm going to be hammering out um, a list of all of these different self-care activities. Um, I feel like that really wouldn't be honoring you as an individual or any of us really. I think, um, and it's also really easy. I was talking to Steve about this. It's really easy just to Google self-care. Um, you guys can hop online anytime and say, you know, what's the best way to deal with blah, blah, blah. And you're going to get an endless list of things. So this is not going to be that. Um, but what we're going to do is try and validate this time that we're going through. We're all living through an extremely challenging time in history where the ask of us as helpers and as humans and educators has never been so great. There's always going to be more asked of us than, we're, than what we're capable of doing. So I'm, I'm not going to be a taskmaster, not, not today. Uh, today, um, we're going to try and get to self-care by way of mindful self-compassion and curiosity. So that's sort of the space that we're going to try and cultivate together. Um, when Steve asked me to speak on the Stigmas Curable series, I didn't know right away what I wanted to discuss, but I knew that I wanted it to be something that I felt passionate about and that I felt connected to. And as a therapist who's in therapy, confronting stigma around needing help and suffering was a significant part of my journey as a therapist. Whoops, there we go. For so long, I held back from getting the support that I needed professionally and from those around me. I genuinely felt like I could not let anybody know how I truly felt and what was happening for me. I was supposed to have it all together. I was really hard on myself and I held myself to those really unrealistic standards that were brutal and torturous. About four years ago, my dad was sick and I knew that he was nearing the end of his life. I had two babies under the age of two. I was working as a full-time therapist and I had just moved to Medway from the South Shore where I had lived and worked and practiced for the last 10 years. I hadn't yet established friends or a community here and I felt like I was going to implode. I was exhibiting symptoms of post-traumatic stress and I had fallen into unhealthy coping strategies. I distinctly remember thinking, I can't present as fucked up as I feel. I'm a therapist for goodness sake. Like what will this mean about me and who I am and the quality of work that I do? Like a Hail Mary in a moment of absolute desperation, I was able to reach out and ask for help. I called a therapist and through the process, I was able to work through the stigma that I had internalized. And it's my hope that by sharing this with you and this part of my journey with you today, that you'll find it to be a relatable experience and that maybe it might even be validating. I was speaking to a dear friend last night um, uh, about this discussion. I was running through the presentation with her because presenting this is really, really outside of my comfort zone. I'm sure you can tell I'm a little bit shaky. Um, 
And the main intention that I had set for tonight was to make sure that this time was useful and impactful for you all in some way. And she's an eighth grade teacher in an a city school. She grew up in, in Brooklyn and I knew that she would give me really honest feedback. She corrected some of my spelling errors on the slides and she explained this to me. She said that through the discussion that she came to understand that the stigma of mental health can lead to us minimizing our own experiences and think that we're what we're going through isn't that bad or that we should be able to just push through. But in actuality, what we're experiencing is traumatic stress. And if ignored or invalidated, it can create more longer term suffering. And if that's something that can be taken away from our discussion tonight, then it will be an hour well spent. So thank you, Daniela, for that amazing feedback and grammatical and spelling error check for me. I appreciate it. So yeah, we're going to talk about stigma. I'm going to read a couple definitions because I do feel like it's helpful. So mental health stigma refers to the societal disapproval or when society places shame on people who live with a mental illness or seek help for emotional distress, such as depression, bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress, and specific to our discussion, compassion fatigue, which is considered traumatic stress and a mental health issue. Self-stigma has been defined as the process in which a person with a with a mental with mental health issues becomes aware of the public stigma, agrees with those stereotypes, and internalizes them by applying them to the self. That's my laundry. Okay. How mental health stigma affects us is that stigma can cloud our actual experience with judgment, and and it can have others and ourselves questioning our competency, our adequacy, our capabilities, our qualifications, and our attitudes and strengths as a professional. So um, what can we do to combat stigma? We can talk openly about our mental health. We can educate ourselves and others and learn more about mental health and recovery. And there's some amazing resources out there that I have two mice here. This is my problem here. Sorry that I keep moving this around. Um, like the, uh, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, Mental Health of America, um, mentalhealth.gov and NAMI, um, the National Alliance on Mental Illness is a wonderful resource um, that you can access to learn more about mental health um, and how we experience it, how others experience it so that we can be conscious of the language, be engaged in mental health conversation. Um, so we begin to treat our mental health like we treat our physical health, um, that we show compassion towards those who live with mental illness or are struggling with their own mental health, including yourself. We can let others know when they're stigmatizing mental health and um, not to silently endorse stigma by saying nothing at all. Um, it's important that we sit with this. So um, if you have a notebook around a pen and paper, Something that you can grab. Actually, now is probably a good time to do that because I might prompt you throughout the um, throughout the course of the discussion to turn toward yourself. I might ask you some questions and maybe having this opportunity to write some things down might be really helpful for you. So I'm just going to give you a second to do that. Okay, I'm going to look through and make sure I kind of hit on some of the things that I wanted to as well while you do that. I'd also say anyone on Zoom or Facebook Live, if you want to share any of the what comes up for you as Joanne prompts you feel free to put it in the chat on zoom and we can talk about it in the question and answer part 
or on Facebook Live, if you're open to it, um, just type it in on the comments and I can share that too when we get to the question and answer part. Cool, thanks, Steve. Yeah, I wanted to, I wrote a little something here that I just wanted to kind of touch on too, um, as you guys kind of gather the, these, the pen and the paper and before we start to do the little mindfulness ex exercise around stigma, um, is when I was working through um, stigma with my therapist, something she said, it was so simple and profound to me that I wanted to share it. And I remember it so clearly. She said, Joanne, before you're a mother, before you're a partner, before you're a social worker, you're human. And somewhere along the way, I internalized this false narrative that somehow like my education or all of my experience may be immune to the human experience. But once I allowed myself to be human again, um, through compassion and self-compassion, my whole world began to change. Um, and that was something that was really profound and I wanted to share that with you. I share also too, because vulnerability and talking about mental health is exactly the thing that breaks down stigma, that we are not immune to this, none of us are. And now more than ever, are, we are all experiencing so going through so much as humans being alive right now, we can, this is such relatable content really to anybody. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there too. So let's just, again, let's find that comfortable position. Um, if you feel comfortable closing your eyes and checking in your head moving and you're trying to put food in your mouth. If you um yes, if you feel comfortable uh closing your eyes. If not, you can look down at your notepad and I can think about how stigma has impacted you and your willingness or ability to ask for help. So just thinking about some of the ways that um that you've noticed stigma presenting itself for you and maybe how that's impacted um, your willingness or ability to ask for help. So just sitting with that for a second. And as you begin to formulate some thought or put some sentences and sentiments together around how you may be feeling, Maybe just taking a minute and noticing how you might be feeling, any sensations that you might be experiencing in your body, anything that might be present along with the thoughts associated with this exercise. There might be like a swirling in the belly, a tightness in the chest, some shakiness, maybe noticing those things as you jot some of these notes down. I'll be prompting you, um, like I said, throughout the um, throughout the discussion to check in, and but the, it's going to build on itself too, just like a little bit of a teaser. Each each kind of like moment where we have these touchstones along the way to check in, and then hopefully by the end you'll be able to have a little bit of a picture of how, maybe how things have shifted or some insights that you've been able to gain through this process. At least that's my hope. Okay, so we're going to move into um, traumatic stress and secondary stress, um, so I'm sorry, secondary trauma. Um, we're just gonna talk about what those things are. Um, so you might be here thinking, um, you know, I'm an educator, I'm a nurse, I'm a, I'm, a, um, I'm a social worker, I'm a therapist, counselor, I'm a Reiki practitioner, um, I'm an advocate in the community. Um, and you might be thinking, I don't know about traumatic stress. You know, I don't know about that. That doesn't seem like something that um, I, I really have much experience. I want, I'm hoping that you can come into this with an open mind. Okay, so let's just kind of run through this and let's see how it comes up for you. Just 
hide this. Okay. So, um, so traumatic stress results from exposure to an incident or series of events that are emotionally disturbing or life-threatening with lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning, mental, physical, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. Secondary trauma is the natural consequent behaviors and emotions resulting from knowledge of a traumatic event experienced by another and from wanting to help the suffering or the tra or traumatized person. Kind of reading this a little bit slowly because I want you to sit with some of this. And I'm making a point to kind of draw out that these are the natural consequent behaviors and emotions. So what this is really alluding to is that if you're experiencing some of these symptoms and secondary trauma or, or um, traumatic stress, which we're gonna talk about as we move forward, but I'm sort of like priming you for this. If you have an experience with any of these, this doesn't mean that there's something wrong, that there's a flaw in the, who you are as a person. It really is the natural consequent behaviors and emotions resulting from the knowledge of a traumatic event, right? That this is something that's very normal that's happening. It's a natural and understandable response to traumatic situations. It's a normal response to abnormal situations. Um, and really comes from the desire of wanting to help someone who is suffering or who has been through trauma. It is our empathy. It's our empathy. It's our humanity. It is us as relational mammals that want to be in relationship with others and exposing ourselves to these difficult situations that can create these symptoms for us, right? This doesn't mean something's wrong uh, with us if, if we tend to start to feel some of these kind of ways. So who's at risk for experiencing um, secondary trauma or traumatic stress? Really anybody who works directly with traumatized children, um, those who work with or care for individuals with trauma, those who volunteer or work with traumatized communities, those who have their own trauma history, and people who are naturally empathetic are at higher risk of developing compassion fatigue because they tend to align with the traumatic situations and stories on, on a deeper level. So what I want you to do is to think about some of the students in your classroom this year, the kids presenting at the nurse's office, your clients, the students of color, the communities and groups that you've been working with, experiencing social and political injustices, the people who are sitting in emergency rooms waiting 13 days for a bed because they're not feeling safe at home. This can be a real part of our lived experience. And along with that comes some of the embodied sensations and feelings associated just in being in proximity and working with these folks in communities. Here's another lovely quote. This is from Charles Figley and I loved it because I felt it really encapsulated compassion fatigue and we're gonna kind of move our way into that. Um, we have not been directly exposed to the traumatic scene, but we hear the story told with such intensity or we hear the story so often or we have the gift and curse of extreme empathy and we suffer. We feel the feelings, we experience the fears, we dream the dreams, and eventually we lose a certain spark of optimism, humor, and hope. 
we tire, we aren't sick, but we aren't ourselves. And I feel like it's really important that we just kind of hold the space for that sentiment because it so often is what we experience and it is our empathy and who we are as humans that draw us into these fields or into relationships with people who are really struggling um, and that we too need tending to. And this is really the invitation there. And to how do we tend, how do we tend to ourselves? How do we show ourselves the same kind of compassion that we show and have for other people? And I think a big piece of this is acknowledging that we might be going through it too in our own way. Um, and this is where stigma, this is the build, right? If we can identify and notice how stigmas can sort of cloud, create this like cloud around how it is that we're feeling, if we can just notice that and sort of let that cloud pass through, what's underneath might be presenting, might be some of this compassion fatigue. Okay, we're going to talk about compassion fatigue. Might be some symptoms of this. Um, and can we turn to ourselves with the same compassion that we turn to others who are suffering to be able to um, tend to our emotional experience, have our own healing process so that we continue to offer that wellness and optimism um, that we offer to others? Can we have that for ourselves too? So compassion fatigue is when someone regularly hears or witnesses very difficult traumatic stories and begins to lose their ability to feel empathy for those they work or care for. Students, patients, loved ones, or coworkers. This is a deeply physical and emotional exhaustion and it can show itself in a very various ways. Compassion fatigue is the weariness that comes from caring. It can present itself as sleep problems, relationship difficulties, frequent irritability and moodiness, feeling overwhelmed, depressed, problems with setting boundaries and struggling to name emotions and sadness. I think it might be helpful to maybe just take a pause here and think about like, what do I notice happening for myself? Okay, I work with these populations or I'm going through these really difficult experiences in my own life. I'm noticing some of these things. Is it, do you notice it in your sleep? Is it in relationships? Um, do you notice a real fluctuation in your moods? Um, are you feeling really overwhelmed, really depressed? Um, difficulty setting boundaries. I'm gonna give an example of what this looks like because um, I've worked with a principal for uh, quite some time and a while back, they were really, really struggling with leaving the work, obviously. I mean, it's such a, it's so easy to stay. There's so much to do. The job's never done like we talked about earlier. Um, and that can feel really overwhelming. Um, and how it showed up for this person was feeling um, like having a really difficult time saying no, um, putting down, um, stop stop checking their email, um, leaving work, they'd show up at six o'clock in the morning and leave at eight o'clock at night. And that can really be a symptom and sign of compassion fatigue too. Um, and we, it's sneaky because we don't always associate um, boundaries with that type of thing or burnout with that. It's like, well, that's really showing up and doing the work, but it can sometimes create this detachment from ourselves. And I think, I thought that was important to note and kind of point out that it can look like that too. 
So symptoms, so some more symptoms of compassion fatigue, um, empathic drain, and this is feeling numb or disconnected, a lack of energy, a care or care about um, other things around you, feeling overwhelmed, powerless or hopeless, um, not being able to relate to others. That's a real, those are some descriptions of that empathic drain. I think we can all kind of wrap our heads around chronic exhaustion. And this is sort of, there's like never enough rest where you feel like you've got some sleep, but you just are just so drained. Um, symptoms and some symptoms that can prom, resemble post-traumatic stress. Um, this is um, a traumatic stress disorder, or this is a symptom or cluster of symptoms of traumatic stress. So they, it's likely to resemble, this isn't a big surprise. Um, but I think when sometimes we hear like post-traumatic stress, like I haven't been through anything specifically traumatic, maybe sit with this, maybe sit with like, maybe, maybe you have. Um, so some of the symptoms that you can experience um, would be fear, guilt, anxiety, apathy, sleep disturbance, hopelessness, nightmares, intrusive thoughts, hypervigilance, um, short-temperedness, some denial of problems. You might be like, do you know that meme of that dog sitting with like a cup of tea and the house is on fire? And he's like, this is fine. Like that's sort of what denial, um, denial of problems can look like. This is fine. Um, these symptoms can further express themselves. So that's sort of what you might be like experiencing. You might also notice compulsive or not compulsive behaviors or maladaptive coping strategies. This can look like overspending, overeating, gambling, drug and alcohol use. And these are ways to avoid the complex and uncomfortable feelings. And let's just like take a minute and honor that. Again, like we're all doing the best we can. And sometimes we turn to these coping strategies and we call them maladaptive coping strategies because they, um, they might not be the healthiest things for us, but they're just what we're doing to try and get through difficult times. Right. I think by understanding and having some compassion toward ourselves, that'd be like, oh, this is what's happening. If we can kind of drop that judgment, we can notice the judgment, say, hey, it's present here. But what if I just asked it to sort of step to the side? Can I understand why these behaviors are here? Can I understand why I might be feeling really hopeless right now? Why I might be having trouble sleeping? I think if we can meet ourselves there in a place of compassion, I think it shifts things a little bit. It creates a little bit of space instead of some of the shame that can come around with the judgment. Cause when we feel shame, we tend to turn away from it because shame um, it's, it's painful. Um, we don't like to feel that way. So anything that we can do to shift away from shame and compassion is such a lovely way to interact with shame um, can again, create some space that we can turn, turn toward it opposed to turning away from it. So this is going to bring us to another little mindfulness exercise. Okay. So again, let's just sort of take a couple of deep breaths, get that little notebook out. You might, you don't have to write, but some people like to do that. Some people really don't, whatever is works for you truly. So just taking a moment, if you feel comfortable closing your eyes, yay. If not, yay, it's all good. Um, just being with the reality of your lived experience over these past few years. If this exercise is really challenging uh, for any reason, you can return to your breath. You can just draw your attention to feeling your feet on the floor. You can open your eyes 
and just breathe in the present moment, that might be actually the most compassionate thing that you can do for yourself. If thinking about what your experience has been like over these last couple of years has been like, cause I, I just wouldn't really honor that it has been so difficult for so many reasons for so many people that if turning toward that right now just seems too big, you don't have to, right? I think just acknowledging, looking at it and saying that's really big is enough, okay? That can be the most compassionate thing that you can do for yourself in this moment. And I love that. I really do love that for you if that's where you're at right now. So just breathe and be with yourself in that knowing. This is hard. Stay right there. But the invitation here is that you get in touch with these thoughts and feelings associated with the changes, the losses, and the experiences that you may have endured over the past two years. How's your work changed? What's your classroom like now? What are your patients like? What's the unit that you work on? What, what's the difference between showing up for work today opposed to the way it was three years ago? What's that like at home? How have these complex social societal issues and circumstances impacted you directly? How have they impacted your community? Those that you're serving and caring for, teaching and treating. And can you touch for a moment even the embodied experience and sensations associated with that lived experience? And if you can, just see if you can just notice where you might feel those sensations in your body. Well, thank you for taking that time. I know that this can be really difficult and I just really wanna honor all of our experiences. And I really appreciate you taking some time to just be in touch with yourself, even if it's just for a moment, that's enough. Honestly, that's enough. Um, just turning towards touching micro moments, a little's enough. We're gonna move into to trauma in the body. And I'm gonna try not to get too excited. This is literally one of my most favorite things to talk about. I was reflecting on this today um, and when I was running through this by myself in my office and I got like, like lit up when I got to I'm like, yeah, trauma in the body. And I'm gonna tell you why, because I was like, wait a minute, what's happening for me? So I wanna give you a little bit of a story here. Um, I think the reason why this excites me so much, look at this brain image. And I'm like, yes. I think this is because for the longest time, the experience that I had with myself was so confusing and I didn't understand it, that I genuinely thought like there was something wrong with me. And when I started to learn about um, trauma in the brain and what it looks like and how we experience it, I was like, oh my goodness, like I'm not, I'm not broken. I think that's why it excites me. It gives me an understanding and education around something that is just so deep, validates something so deep inside of me that I just can't help but be like stoked when I talk about the brain and our embodied experience and what's happening on a neurobiological level. So buckle up, but we only have just like 20 minutes. So it's gonna be like a crash course, but I'm excited about it if you can't tell. 
Um, so it starts in the brain, right? So we're kind of walking around the world and our cerebral cortex, our prefrontal cortex is taking in all the information, right? And it's assessing, right? And for something happens, a dog comes running at us barking. We get an email from our boss. Um, a student walks into our room with tears in their eyes. Um, we have a sixth student in, the, in a sixth student in the office, or um, a patient relies. There's a, an alert or um, a code on the floor, right? And all of a sudden, your brain goes, "Uh oh, uh oh, danger, danger!" And it happens in a microsecond. A microsecond. So the information comes in through the prefrontal cerebral cortex in your brain and it goes to the amygdala. It shoots right down to the amygdala. And the amygdala, this is it, it that's located in the emotional area of the brain. It sends a distress signal to the hypothalamus. Okay, you follow me? So, and what the hypothalamus does is that is the, com the command center and the control center of, of our, our brain. And it communicates to the body through the nervous system. So what happens is automatically, um, and it really is, it's automatic. It happens so fast that it sends a message to our nervous system to go into alert, right? It says, danger, danger, let's get ready. Um, it's important that we understand this process because the understanding again can allow us to bring mindful awareness into these moments when we're activated or triggered. Knowing when we're in a state of arousal, which we'll kind of talk about as we move forward, um, it helps us know what we might need and how to tend to these biologically based physiological responses, right? So the nervous system, real quick, the autonomic nervous system is two parts. One's the sympathetic nervous system, and that's like a gas pedal on a car, right? So this is the let's go, like gets you ready. <laughs> so I'm laughing because I was talking to Steve earlier today because um, I am a, in a state of hypoarousal right now. Um, this um, presentation, again, is outside of my comfort zone. So it's bringing me just outside, just a hair outside of my window of tolerance, which we'll talk about. But my, I'm getting distress signals. And look, my armpits are like, it's happening over here. Like I'm shaking, I'm sweating. Um, so my sympathetic nervous system is activated and that produces this adrenal like response. Uh, yeah, the adrenal response. So we're ready to go. Um, the parasympathetic nervous system acts like a break and it promotes the rest and digest response. And that calms down the body after the danger is passed. It's all gonna come really relevant in just a minute. Okay, this is all building. So our window of tolerance, this is important. This is this um, was talked about, Dan Siegel came up with this and he described the window of tolerance as the optimal zone of arousal, right? So where we can manage to thrive in everyday life. We're able to respond to all that comes our way without getting thrown off course. When we are outside of the window of tolerance, our nervous system responds by going into survival mode, like a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response, okay? This is a really nice image. So I'm gonna have this up while I speak a little bit if you guys can take a look at it. I'm gonna take a drink and I'm gonna take a breath. All right, so this, this slide really describes the window of tolerance. So when circumstances, tr stressors, triggers, or even a perceived threat um, can be enough to send us outside of our window of tolerance, we enter into survival mode. Our body recognizes the threat and our brain's automatic nervous system reacts quickly, releasing those hormones, adrenal response um, and cortisol. So the, uh, 
the, um, the hypoarousal and the hypoarousal. And these hormones um, trigger physical changes that help prepare us to handle a threat, um, whether it involves physical or emotional danger our perceived harm. I think it's really important to talk about perceived harm too. I think this is um, because sometimes you might be thinking like, I don't understand why I'm so activated. Like everything's okay, but I am like not okay right now. And sometimes that's a nod to some trauma that we may have experienced um, at earlier stages or times in our life. Um, our brains are sort of organizing machines and they can file um, situations under dangerous, um, even though as we get older or we come into different times or spaces in our lives where those situations are no longer dangerous, our body's going to be prepared for it to be dangerous. Um, so that's, so perceived threat, I think is really, um, a good thing just to touch on too, just to kind of understand what that can be like as well. So when we're outside of our window of tolerance, we can go into hypoarousal and this comes from the fight um, this is the fight flight adrenal response. Um, and that's our racing heart, uh, racing thoughts our, we can have some digestive issues. We get hypervigilant to our surroundings, which means like, we really can hear things really well or smell things really well. We're just kind of on alert, high alert. We might feel an intense wave of anxiety, panic, or anger. Our emotions can be overwhelming and out of control in this state of hyperarousal. Often people who experience hyperarousal are stuck on which can make it difficult to form healthy sleeping habits, manage emotions, concentrate effectively. Physically, our bodies may seem tense or on the brink of explosions, which can um, result in anger outbursts or hostility. So hypoarousal, this is this blue space. Um, this is known as shutdown or collapse, okay? So um, it can look like a little dissociative or disconnected, like your body and your mind are disconnected from themselves. It can look like depression. You might notice uh, lack of motivation, exhaustion, feeling numb, disconnected from your emotions. It can impact your sleep and eating habits, leaving you feel um, feeling socially withdrawn and finding it difficult to express yourself or communicate how you're feeling. This yellow area, that's your window of tolerance. Um, this is where you fun you're functioning uh, optimally. But over time, if you're exposed to chronic stress, if you are experiencing traumatic stress or compassion fatigue, this window shrinks. And this is any sort of trauma response, okay? So at the top of the slides is how trauma can affect your window of tolerance. So what it can really do is shrink your window of tolerance. Um, and so what we're gonna talk about as we move into the, the last portion of the discussion is we're gonna talk about how do we expand our window of tolerance? How can we understand what's going on for ourselves so that we can, with compassion, turn to ourselves in those moments, tend to our emotional and our embodied experience of what's happening in a loving and compassionate way so that, our, so that we feel safe, understood and held oftentimes by ourselves or a safe other, be able to communicate. Um, and that expands our window of tolerance, okay? So we wanna broaden that. Um, and so that's sort of what we're, what we're getting at here is that how this insight can allow us, again, this is this mindfulness um, that we'll talk about after the slide, is how mindfulness is really that invitation to, to decide what we're gonna, what are we gonna do um, with the situation that we find ourselves in so that it's less automatic, that mouse again, okay. So um, this is the fight, flight, freeze, fawn response. Um, 
This is in a state of hyperarousal, okay? So we're activated. Again, this is a state that so often, so many of us find ourselves in when we're feeling a lot of stress and in a state of, if we're experiencing compassion fatigue. Um, again, we are caring for ourselves. This is where we find ourselves here is like, how do I self-care so that I can continue to do this work? And a big piece of self-care um, is understanding um, how we experience uh, ourselves in states of hyper or hypoarousal. Okay. Let's take a deep breath. Okay. So um, this can kind of show up in different ways. You might really identify with like, whoa, I'm a fighter. I'm a flighter. I'm a freezer. I'm a fawner. I'm a, I'm kind of this and these types of situations. I encourage you to think about yourself when we talk about this. So fight can look like temper and anger outbursts, aggressiveness, can dominate and control others, demands perfection from others, pursues power and control, impulsive decision-making, assertiveness, bullying, um, incessant criticism and raging. Flight can look like, this is me, I'm a flight one. I, I'm a flighter. Um, feelings of panic and anxiety, workaholism. So you can really get into work and be like, it's easier for me to do this than turn toward the difficult situation. So I'm gonna throw myself into doing the work. Obsessive and compulsive behaviors, always on the go, staying busy, over-worrying, perfectionism, overachieving, hyperactive or hyper-analytical. Um, some people really identify with that freeze response, and this is how this can show up. It looks like depression, dissociation, brain fog, we avoid human contact, we can feel detached, struggle with making decisions, we can go into this hibernation mode, we can feel lifeless, feeling dead inside, spaced out or isolated. And some people really associate with the fawn response. And this is something that we, most people um, know the least about. Some people haven't heard about this. I'm really excited to talk about this today. The fawn response um, is really learned from um, oftentimes in childhood. If we um, realize that there are the situation that we find ourselves in, all of this, this encapsulates all of these, these four ways that it can show up as unsafe. This is a response. So people who fawn, they learn how to take care of other people in order to keep themselves, others, or their environment safe. This can look like people pleasing, codependency. We didn't have a hard time standing up for ourselves or saying no. We might have a lack of boundaries. We might defer to others to make decisions for us. Um, we might avoid conflict, um, or we are highly concerned with fitting in. Um, so maybe just taking a minute now to think about how you experience your fight, um, your, your states of hyperarousal. So we can really use mindfulness as a tool. Um, our emotion regulation really depends on our ability to be mindful of the fluctuations and our levels of arousal and respond wisely. Becoming aware of our body sensations, our thoughts, emotions, responses, we can learn to recognize when we are inside of our optimal zone of functioning or outside of our optimal zone of functioning. So are we going into hyper or hypo states of arousal? Um, I'm going to go back to the fight, um, to the, the fight, flight, freeze, fawn um, in just a second. I want to talk about um, skills to reduce um, and increase arousal. This is like the only time I'm going to run through a skills list, but I feel like it's really helpful um, because um, 
It's just something that you can do. You can also Google it too. This is something that you can Google, but I'm going to run through it quickly. Skills to reduce arousal. So when you're in that red zone, you can take a shower, use a weighted blanket, breathe, do yoga, grounding exercises, meditation, humming, connecting with a friend, walking barefoot in nature, creating art, rubbing face on your neck, ice on your face or your neck. Uh, skills to increase arousal can be movement, dancing, upbeat music, exercise, engaging in the five senses, like a cardio burst, cardio plunges, and cold plunges, laughing, power yoga, skipping, playing, anything to sort of increase activation and arousal. Here's where we're gonna move back into that, um, into thinking about the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. I'm gonna ask you again, just to kind of get in touch with yourself and check in to see how you notice yourself do, how do you react in times of heightened stress, danger, or perceived threat? Just checking in here. Maybe jotting a couple notes down. So I think it's important to understand ourselves. The more we understand ourselves, the more we can meet ourselves with compassion and curiosity. Okay, so we're gonna be moving into sort of the final leg of this presentation, which is good because it's like we have just a few more minutes. Um, I'm gonna do my best to get through all of this. I wanna leave some time for questions because I think it's gonna be really helpful, but I also know that this content is so good. So I wanna be able to give you some of this as well. So self-compassion really is no different than having compassion for another. It involves acting the same way toward ourselves when we're having a difficult time, failing or noticing something that you don't like about yourself. Instead of just ignoring your pain with a stiff upper lip um, mentality, you stop and you tell yourself, this is really difficult right now. How can I comfort and care for myself in this moment? It's having an attitude of kindness and consideration toward yourself. With compassion, we can give ourselves the same kindness that we can give to a good friend. Letting go of those harsh judgments and criticisms can allow yourself space to be human and space for your shortcomings. How we can be compassionate is just acknowledging the painful situation or emotion that we find ourselves in. We can tell ourselves that this is really difficult right now. How can I comfort and care for myself in this moment? You're kind and you're understanding when confronted with personal failings, because after all, who said that we were supposed to be perfect anyway? This self-compassion led change is allowing yourself to be healthier and happier because you care about yourself, not because you're worthless or unacceptable as you are. It's really honoring and accepting your humanness. I have another mindfulness activity and we're gonna do it. <laughs> um, you deserve it, okay? You deserve this moment. This is a mindfulness-led compassion break. This woman, Kristen Neff, I'm gonna leave some resources for um, at the end for um, Kristen's website and some of the work she's done. She literally wrote the book on, um, on compassion, on self-compassion, and it was really just great, great stuff. Um, so find a com comfortable seat. I'm going to walk you through this, this little compassion break to give you a working example of what to do with this um, so that you have something tangible to take with you when you leave. So get comfortable. We're going to take this compassion break. I'm going to get comfortable too. 
All right, just start to take some of those nice deep breaths. I'm going to use this compassion break to bring in some tenderness and some loving connected presence when you're hurting or struggling in some way. So maybe right now, think of a situation in your life where you're needing some care. Maybe you're feeling inadequate in some way, feeling badly about a failure or a mistake that you've made or something about yourself that you don't like. Maybe it's something that's very difficult in your life, something really stressful or challenging. Just allow yourself to feel your way into the situation. What's going on for you? Where are you feeling this, right? Like allowing yourself to feel the distress and where you hold on to it in your body. So we're really just dropping out of our heads and down into our bodies. Start to feel that discomfort. And again, as always, if this starts to feel overwhelming in any way, sometimes the most loving and compassionate thing that we can do is just open our eyes, feel our feet on the floor and just breathe. That's absolutely welcome here too. We're gonna bring in these three components of self-compassion and it really, the first one starts with mindfulness, which we've been talking about all day. Mindfulness when it comes to tender and acceptance is really just about being present with what is, being present and validating the pain. It's saying no to yourself. Something like it's really hard to feel or to experience what I'm feeling right now. This is a moment of suffering. You also can remind ourselves that we're human, we're human. And feeling this way, feeling like this, situations like this, this is part of being human. There's nothing wrong with you for feeling this way. And you are not the only one that feels this way. Allowing yourself to feel connected to others in your own imperfection. And then the last thing that we wanna do with a compassion break is just to bring in some kindness by way of physical touch. See, I almost always <laughs> want to talk about these things. I have my hand on my heart, which you probably can't see if your eyes are closed. My hands on my heart. You can also hold your face in your hands. Maybe cradle your face with your hands, feeling the warmth and saying something kind to yourself, which is exactly what you need to hear in the moment. Maybe it's a message of acceptance, like it's okay to be imperfect. A message of support, like I know it's hard and I'm here for you and it will be okay. Or if you're not sure what to say, you might imagine what you would say to a dear friend in a very similar situation. What words of caring and comfort would you use to help your friend in trying to say something similar to yourself? Now we're gonna just begin to let this practice go. Letting yourself be exactly as you are in this moment. And if you're feeling any distress, you can always try grounding your feet on the floor, feeling the soles of your feet and feeling that stability. And just taking a moment to be with how you are right now. And when you feel ready, opening up your eyes. And we're just gonna run through our last few slides on self-compassion. Because self-compassion is often a radically new way of relating to ourselves. And the research shows that the more that we practice being kind and compassionate with ourselves, 
um, either using these informal practices like the, the self-compassion break, the more will increase the habit of self-compassion. So it really is a practice. It's actually a practice of goodwill, not good feelings. So what this means is, and this slide really describes this, but I'm gonna give it to you in a nutshell which is that um, even though it's a very friendly and supportive um, practice to alleviate suffering, we can't control the way that things are. And sometimes when we try um, to make our pain goes, go away, it actually just makes it worth, worse. So with self-compassion, um, we're just trying to mindfully accept that the moment is painful and that what we're going through is really hard. And with kindness and care and response, remembering that imperfection is part of the shared human experience and we're not supposed to do it right all the time. This allows us to hold, ourself, hold ourselves in this place of love and connection um, and give ourselves the support and comfort that we need to bear the pain while providing the optimal conditions for growth and transformation. We must allow ourselves to be slow learners. This does not happen overnight. What we're really doing when we're turning towards ourselves in our moments of, of distress or pain or suffering, when we turn toward opposed to turn away, um, we're creating new neurological pathways in our brain. And that takes time. It's like building roads, like roads don't come overnight. If you live in Medway, look what's happening on West Street and the bridge. This has taken six months and it's just a very small piece of road. This is sort of how it works, right? Um, so let's allowing change to happen slowly. If we ever feel overwhelmed by difficult emotions, sometimes the most compassionate response that we might have is to pull back temporarily, which we kind of practice today too, focusing on our breath, the sensations of the soles of our feet on the ground, engaging in ordinary behavioral acts like having a cup of tea, petting the cat, holding the laundry, right? By doing this, we're reinforcing the habit of self-compassion. We're giving ourselves what we need in the moment, planting the seeds that will eventually blossom and grow. Caregivers who practice self-compassion are less likely to experience compassion fatigue. So this is it, right? We remove the cloud that stigma can can put around our mental health, and we turn toward it so that we can educate educate ourselves around it, understand it, validate ourselves with compassion. We can start to recognize when we're in states of hyperarousal, when we're thrown outside of our window of tolerance, when we're really stressed and overwhelmed. We can hold ourselves with love and compassion and create this safe space for us to feel, and it expands our window of tolerance. It gives us more to give, and it's a real practice of, of love and self-care. We experience greater compassion um, satisfaction. We're more likely to engage in self-care, and we're more likely to exhibit compassion towards others. This is the resource around Kristen Neff. She's wonderful. Um, she literally wrote, wrote the book on self-compassion. She has wonderful resources on her website. Um, definitely worth checking out, and it's literally selfcompassion.org. If you just Google self-compassion, it's the first thing that comes up. Um, she's wonderful. Um, so self-care, right? We've, this is what we've talked about all day. So maybe this is the redefining and re-understanding self-care. Self-care is identifying the stigma and the roadblocks that tend to our physical, social, mental health, and emotional and spiritual needs, like identifying the stigmas and being able to remove those roadblocks so we can tend to ourselves. Understanding our natural biological responses to stress and traumatic experiences so that we can understand and tend to and explore our window of tolerance. And lastly, practicing turning towards ourselves with compassion inside and out 
in moments of activation. This is sort of the new self-care, right? This is a new way of framing it. So that's it. Um, I might need my husband to come and help me <laughs> because I'm not good at technology, but hopefully everybody's still here. Hi. Oh, I can't hear you. Hang on one sec. Uh, that's my fault. Hi, Kev. All right. So, yeah, sorry. <laughs> awesome job. Amazing. Great stuff. I know you were feeling pressure towards the end because of time, but don't don't worry about it. You you nailed it. You did oh, good. I hope it all came through. I hope that it all came through. So what we're going to do now is just open it up for a small question and answer portion. I know uh, Facebook Live had a couple questions on there, so I will read those to start us off. But anyone on Zoom, if you want to ask a question or offer a statement, go into chat type it into chat and I'll give you the option. This is being recorded. It is on our Facebook Live. We're also gonna put it out on our podcast, which is called Break the Chains, Find Your Flame. So um, if you want me to read it for you, just let me know so that you don't necessarily have to have your voice on the podcast unless you want it to, and then you'll be famous and get all these <laughs> accolades. Um, and uh, anyone on Facebook Live, any uh, comments or questions feel free to write them in now and i'll read them for you so you can pick and choose and put joanne on the spot so I love it i'm better like this honestly <laughs> this is so much easier for me than you can make those armpits sweat a little bit more or something. <laughs> Good. so one of the there's a couple of comments so i just want to read those first to get us uh going um you're amazing that's from kevin um, a couple other people, uh, Sedalia said, oh, wow, I feel this hard. Oh. Uh, Daniela, I feel like I've been all of these things at one point or another over the past two years. So that's when you're doing the four fours, um, yes. four Fs, <laughs> four <Awesome>. fours, <laughs> fantastic forces in my brain. I don't know why. And then Sarah Eastman asked a question, and this is what we'll start off with is, can people be all four? Fight, yeah. flight, fight, fawn, and freeze. I find myself do them all depending on the stressor that's involved. So that yeah. that'll be the first question that we have. Wonderful question. Wonderful question, Sarah. And yes, like this is would have been one of the I one of the notes that I had made in the beginning of my presentation was just sort of like thinking, sharing um, how I had in, there's really enough content to make this like a 12 week course. There's so much here and I would love to get into this. Yeah, I mean, I think that we all do and it really depends on the activator, right? The thing that's coming at us, if it's a dog, it's one thing, if it's an email, it's another. And it depends, and it all has to do with relationships. Um, so here's the fascinating thing. Um, is if you're into attachment theory, if like, and it's so hot right now, cause therapy is so hot right now and I'm here for it. Um, but real people are starting to really talk about attachment styles and it really does help you understand like, how do I respond in these situations? But it really depends on the relationship that you have with the activator, whether it's a person, whether it's a drink, whether it's exercise, there's a relationship involved and that relationship will dictate what you do. And, and how you respond to it. So yes, astute observation, Sarah, you can absolutely experience 
any one or all four of those ways of, of being in hyperarousal. You don't have to be one or the other. Awesome. Anything you want to add to that, Steve? No, I think, I think you're right. Um, let me just say, I also think it's really funny that therapists like F words a lot and just <laughs> decided for the alliteration, but it, you know, I find myself in, in doing the, the breaks that you were doing, I was finding myself connecting to many different parts of all four of those in different ways and not necessarily being the stereotypical hitting all those metrics, but in one way or another, you can definitely see how you ebb and flow out of those states of arousal. So I, yeah. I thought that was a powerful slide. Awesome. Couple more awesome. comments. Mm -hmm. Sarah says this was terrific. April says, Joanne, amazing stuff. That self-compassion break was powerful, which is awesome. Good. And then Holly shares, thank you so much for extending this invite. I'm on the side of shy, shameful when it comes to my mental health. This was an unexpected and welcome step forward for me. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. I would also add that, you know, I think that that comment is so powerful into what we're talking about today. And the fact that, you know, there's a lot of pressure to show up to these things and to do everything right and have these profound questions and things of that nature. And I think just showing up to stuff like this is a huge step forward and a huge part of self-care and allowing yourself that space to, to take that step. And people kind of undermine that a lot and don't really recognize that as stereotypically recognize that as, you know, engaging in this way, but I do think it's really profound. So thank you for sharing that. Yes. Thank you so much. It's, it's really, that's what I really came out to do. Um, I was so consumed, like literally, like I need this to be um, helpful because it's on self-care and self-compassion um, that I was, I, the, so thank you for sharing that you were able to get something out of it and take something away from it. Cause that was really my ultimate goal was that this could be um, impactful and useful in some way. So I really appreciate that feedback. We got a comment from Melissa in the zoom chat. It says the fight flight freeze or fawn slide was eye-opening. I definitely identify myself between flight and freeze. Thank you for your expertise. Yes. Thank you so much. I found that slide. I'm, on on um on just Google images, and there was something about that slide in particular. That's why I left it up, and the credits are on it because I'm like, yes, like it it, it explains so much in such a concise way. I think when we think, we, well, normally when we think of like arousal states, if you think of arousal states, you think of fight or flight. Fight or flight. You yeah. don't realize that freeze. Well, we started to hear about freeze, but people don't even know about fawn really. Right. Um, but then the way, what it looks like in real life, like when I was talking to Daniela the other night, she was like, I didn't even realize like overworking is a flight response. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like we just don't realize. I think it's part of the destigmatization, honestly, is that uh, like there are people who experience mental health symptoms and there are people who don't. And that is just simply not true, is that we all have a mental health because we all are human beings we have a nervous system and we are relational mammals. And because of that, we have mental health right. and we can recognize these things as invitations. That's how I like to look at the, that when I experience something, that's the invitation to get curious what's happening for me and what's the most loving and compassionate way that I can turn toward myself in a way, in a time that can um, best serve me, that I'm serving my highest self. Cause I might want to go and have like a big spoonful of cool whip out of the refrigerator, but how is that serving me? And it might, 
That's the thing. I might be like, this is just precisely what I want and need right now. And sometimes it's not, but it's that pause that creates, it's the mindfulness, right? That creates the fork in the road where it stops and that we can think, how would I like to proceed? Right. And that's such an important intersection of being able to say, I am aware and how would I like to proceed? And, and it gives us a sense of, um, agency, I guess, is the word that I'm looking for. And that is great for our mental health. But I know what's going on for me. And I am in, in and I am the sort of the steer of the vessel of my ship. And I even though the waves keep coming and the storms all around me, I have the hands, my hands on the steering wheel of this. Awesome. That cool example seems a little too personal not to be real. So I like that. Uh, Kevin Barry <laughs> shares. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. Off to bedtime. Good night. Good night. Some self-care and self-compassion right there. Sandy shares on this. This should be required learning for everyone in healthcare. The clinicians I work with are so burnt out and struggling with work, personal issues. And I see the stigma every day with them not wanting to acknowledge and talk about their own mental health and seek appropriate treatments. Thank you for sharing this talk. Thank you so much for sharing that, Sandy. That I same. Same. And I, and I, not only do I see it, I like shared earlier, I really had that personal experience myself. Um, and, and it was the most profound and impactful thing that I could ever do was invite um, myself to look at stigma and, and to allow compassion to come in and to understand myself as a human. 100%. A couple comments here on Facebook live. Uh, Sarah shares, I find myself giving the best of myself to my students, but not giving the same to myself. Yes. And then uh, there's another one that that's very similar to before talks like this should be mandatory professional development for educators. Wow. And Daniela, again, Joanne, I'm honored to call you my friend. Congratulations on an amazing event. Wait, is this the same Daniela that helped you with the spelling? Yes. Yes. Uh, Awesome. Yes. Daniela. I feel starstruck just having (laughs) having you mention it. It's really great to have friends that, you know, she's a teacher. She works at a, a city school, eighth grade. Like she is, she's feels this like feeling these things. Um, and she's a really nice barometer, just someone to have in, in my life, you know, to be able to tell me what's, what it's really like and what's really going on. Um, she was really great to help me put this whole thing together and run it by her. Cause like I said, this is not my, cause not my comfort zone. So she was great. Awesome. Well, <sighs> I think we're going to wrap it up there. There's a lot of information to digest, a lot of awesome breaks we took to do self-compassion and self-care tonight. I yeah. appreciate everyone tuning in, having awesome comments, awesome questions, and most importantly, Joanne, I appreciate and honor the fact that we are friends and get to connect yeah. on this level and share. Um, Can I just say one thing, one more thing, just Sarah, I think it was Sarah, her name who expressed that she, she notices herself giving so much to her students. I just want to just hold, like, just hold that feeling. That's what we talk about turning towards. Nothing needs to be done with that, but to just, wow, like that is powerful in itself. And just what you just were able to do and, and notice that and articulate it and maybe even feel it. That's it. That's it is to say, this is something that's happening for me. And I'm sure there's a feeling associated with it. So feel that. So thank you so much for sharing that. And, and I'd like to second, and I know 
I said we were stopping, but I lied. So whatever. Um, so Joe and I were actually talking about this the other night. And I think that's a really important part that you just shared is that so often when we talk about self-care, we think about, you know, jacuzzis and taking a vacation away or having a night with your friends and things of those nature. And sometimes that can be more overwhelming because you have to add more to your plate to engage in self-care. And that redefinition, that slide of redefining what self-care is, which can you send me that? I want to share that if you're open to it. Um, I think that is beautiful because it redefines self-care and not necessarily an extra thing you do, but a space that you can hold, which even when you're overwhelmed, you can engage in that and not feel like, oh, now I have to go give all my energy to this. That's right. And that's what I rushed through at the end. But it really, the self-care is the turning towards the facing it and just, and it can micro moments. It can be one second of looking at it, touching it, breathing. So with tight in this type of work, I could go on and on. It's titration and pendulation, right? So if you're in the nursing field, you might like, so you titrate and you pendulate. So you swing in, you feel the discomfort, you acknowledge it and you swing out. You don't have to stay here. You don't have to unpack and live in the discomfort. It's just turning toward it in those moments, acknowledging it, saying, this is what it is. And then whatever, maybe you stay there long, maybe you don't, maybe you swing out. The idea is over time, you can build a tolerance to these feelings, knowing that although my danger, danger alerts are going off, I actually am safe that we're creating this new relationship with these feelings where that once felt our danger signals are going off, but now that we're actually with them, we can create a sense of safety in being unsafe. Right. And that's such a weird kind of thing, but that's really what we're doing is building a tolerance to the un- the uncomfortable and unsafe feelings. So think about the pendulation and titration and that the turning towards is the act of self-love and self-care that it, it can be an action, but it's also just being in the feeling, allowing yourself to breathe into that space just for a microsecond. That's creating the new neurological pathways of compassion and kindness instead of the automatic turning away or harsh judgment, whatever it is. Cause some, we have, we also have tapes that go along with this too. The things that we tell ourselves when we feel this way. Um, so yeah, that's the act of self-compassion and self-love and self-care. So stay tuned. We might be selling t-shirts that say titration and pendulation. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty catchy. Yeah. Don't get me started on the spectrum. It's a, it's a yeah, tongue twister for sure. Self-care. Don't get me started. Don't... <laughs> All right. Okay. So knowing that I'm, I am going to put an end to this portion of stigma is curable because i think we could be here all night and it would be wonderful and awesome and maybe we'll have to revisit um i want to thank you thank you so much i'm honored to to know you and have you speak at this event and thank you all for tuning in our next stigma is curable is next month in november and it is coinciding with movember and will be about men's mental health and physical health and wellness So thank you all for tuning in and we hope to see you at the next event. Okay. Thank you so much. Take care, everybody.